You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Robin Collins. I'm an actor, director, producer, brand manager, and editor, and other things that I am no longer allowed to do during this uh, pandemic. Now, all I make is tears in a curled up ball position. Enjoy the show. I'm making a living. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Um, I'm not willing to give the number of dollars that I make for a living. That's a rude question. No, uh, my name is Robin Collins um, and I tell stories for a living. I am a slashy uh, in the truest sense of the word. I am an actor, director, producer, editor, brand manager, and uh, babysitter sometimes. <laughs> a budding my... babysitting career. Yeah, yeah. Well, I babysit uh, artists every once in a while. Right, yeah. I, they need, I, they I, need don't help. Know if, I don't know if you and your audience are aware of this, but sometimes artists can be neurotic. No. Yes. This is a hard truth. And they come to you. They, often, they get left on your doorstep. Often. Cold yeah. and hungry, yeah. shivering. Yeah. With just a, just a soother. And do they leave a note? Uh, it's just a handprint in blood. <laughs> and you take them in, you nurse them back to health, some semblance thereof. I do what I can. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, you know, I, I began acting as a young man. Wow, I was 12 and did my first television series uh, at the CBC in, um, in Vancouver. And that sort of informed my trajectory. Uh, I knew I just wanted to tell stories for a living. Um, I got, it became clear to me after teenage happened that every young actor, every child actor, grew up to be a terrible actor. Uh, so around university time, I got out of the business entirely and did something completely different in order to have a life and experience that could give me something to draw upon that wasn't just growing up with craft service tables and things like that. And then when I had gotten through that i got back into the world and the entertainment world and moved to los angeles um to fight with all the other piranhas here <laughs> when you were in vancouver and you were not working in entertainment were you still acting were you still working on things i avoided it um i became i i ran the largest halfway house in the world we had a 40 bed contract with correction services for the worst of the worst. So they were the drug addicted or alcohol addict, substance addicted, you know, murderers, rapists, pedophiles, et cetera, that were um, in federal prison for naughty, naughty things. And I was the person who decided whether they could come out and start trying to play with the other humans. Um, and it was very fulfilling. Um, I loved working with the clients. I hated working with the government. <laughs> uh, the red tape was the thing I wanted to hang myself with. And unusually, in my five-year span 
uh, with over 500 murders, only three people attempted to murder me, which I'm told is very low. That's good numbers. Yeah, which means that murderers like me. So that's dubiously good. I don't know if that's... Since then, how many directors have wanted to murder you? Oh, I hope all. <laughs> I can account yeah, for a few. Well, <laughs> so I went, I went from coddling murderers to something way more dangerous, living in Hollywood. <laughs> so what did bring you to Hollywood then? Like you, you, you were making a difference in the world and you said, nah, enough of that. I've had it. I'm, I'm going to go and make no difference in the world. I'm going to be an actor in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it was a combination of two things. Um, number one, it was the last murder attempt. The first two murder attempts were a knife and a broken bottle. And the last one, which I was fine. I was young. I can fend for myself. And they're usually not terribly, you know, they're drunk or high. So it's easy to deal with. The third murder attempt uh, was a man with a syringe, his syringe, and he was HIV positive. And I was able to avoid the syringe, but my brain went, yeah, but he doesn't even have to kill me. If he gets that in me, I'm in big, big trouble. So I was like, okay, enough is enough. And I had also, I come to miss telling stories. And I knew there was a change needed. I was uh, yearning for creative uh, output. So I just picked up and moved. So there wasn't a job that pulled you down to Hollywood. It was just, I want to get back into this. I want to give it a whirl. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, had gotten my bachelor's, one in psychology and one in fine arts with an acting um, major. And um, I knew that I wasn't going to work in a cubicle for the rest of my life. When I landed in Los Angeles, and it's something that has informed me to this day, I said out loud, I said, from now on, you will never do anything that is not creative. So I'm not, you're not going to wait tables. You'll, you're not going to become a real estate agent. You're not going to do anything if it isn't creative. And you will be homeless before you do any of that. I was very stern with myself. And, you know, by no means am I rich and famous, but I have had the joy of being here for 11 years and literally only being creative and paying the bills and having great experiences. And uh, yeah, so that was one of my first rules and it remains a rule. So give me a sense of, of what are some of these creative things? What, what was your first gig when you got to LA? Um, <clears throat> I began editing for um, rap, rap videos, basically Tupac's, Tupac's family. The director of, I believe, Gin and Juice, what other ones? Anyway, his name is Gobi Rahimi, um, and he was one of Tupac's very close friends, uh, was there the night that he uh, died, and I met with him, and he liked the way I edited and um, hired me to get involved in the rap game. So I worked with Bubba Sparks and a lot of Tupac's cousins. They would call. I, I didn't know whether they were really cousins. You missed air quotes, like, everybody. There was a lot of air I, quotes just now. Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, I, you never really know whether, are you biological cousins? Or are you just a cuz? I don't know. And that lasted about a year and a half before I got out of it because I was at a studio with, uh, I, I went to Snoop Dogg's 
private birthday part. I was the only Caucasian member. And Snoop had to yell at the crowd, don't worry, this is my white boy, uh, in order to keep me safe, which I was very happy about. I was That's like, very okay. kind of him. It was very kind, because everyone looked at me sideways. And... and I was, and everyone has a gun. Like they just—that's how it is. In America. Inglewood. That's Inglewood, man. That's they, everyone's got a gun in their pants. And I'm a small town kid from Canadian kid from Victoria, British Columbia. I'm like, <laughs> oh, terrifying. Um, and one of his cousins was doing an album, and I was filming and editing the behind the scenes of the recording of the album on a on a at a recording studio in Santa Monica. No, it was on Santa Monica in Hollywood, Santa Monica and Highland. And when you're, when you're a rap, a young rapper that's trying to leave Englewood or Long Beach or wherever you are, there's a point where, quote, you start to fuck with white people, <laughs> which means that you've reached a point where you, that's it, a horrible, horrible truth, but that's what they say to each other. Like, how's your career going? Oh, I'm starting to fuck with white people. Oh, that's interesting. It's a level of some kind. It's horrible. Um, and so I, I was the fish that they would throw. I was the first white person that they would throw at these gang members, effectively. And uh, Kitchen Crips, woo, K's up, riders. And a cuz of his wasn't invited to the recording session. Found out that there was a recording session with me and bust in with a no joke it's so cliche an open bottle of hennessy no shirt <laughs> and a gun in his pants Come and on. obviously he was angry that he wasn't invited and then the artist was angry that he was you know screwing with my paper and uh they got into a physical fight the guns came out no one fired anything and the only way that uh i was that if things were going to be cool is that if, if I took a swig of the Hennessy that he brought, then everything was going to be cool, which I did not want to do. And I did immediately. <laughs> and then I excused myself to go to the bathroom and got out of the rap game. <laughs> and then it was into comedy after that. Far more dangerous. Far more. And that's when I started uh, dabbling with you. That's true. You and I have cross paths. Yes. We've crossed streams. We called that a crossfire when my brother and I were growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So you got out of the rap game. You got into the comedy game. What were you doing in comedy? Were you acting? Yeah. A, a friend of mine, funnily, funnily enough, from Victoria, her name was Hallie Bird. I went to uh, high school with her, and she is a very talented woman and uh, was a talent agent in Vancouver herself for quite some time. Uh, she knew a talent agent here called Daniel Hoff through family uh, connections in Hollywood, un not unlike any other situation, it is really who, you know, uh, it, it is nepotism is alive and well. And so she said, uh, this guy, Robin, I've seen what he can do on the stage and uh, you should, you should have him. And Daniel Hoff, who is amazing. Um, he's an amazing advocate for me and has gotten my back for a decade now. He's an incredible agent. And I became arguably the highest paid commercial actor in Los Angeles, which 
is kind of like being the principal of a homeschool, <laughs> but it's something. <laughs> it, it's it, it, it's something. I mean, so what did that mean? Did that mean you were you were you were doing a lot of commercials? Or are you doing high profile commercials? Everything in between? Both. I was doing national commercials for beer and cars and uh, and little stuff too. Those are good companies. Beer absolutely, and cars. Absolutely. <laughs> were there were there specific beer companies you did a bunch of stuff for, or specific uh, car companies? Yeah. Well, you know, Super Bowl commercials are probably the the gold of commercial work, and so I did one for you know Bud Light and Good Toyota had me back a ton of times. What do you think it was that they wanted you back? Well, they make a lot of stuff. These companies. So, yeah, like, absolutely. What is it that, that that you think drew them to you time and again? The easy answer is fear. A lot of the commercial industry and really all the entertainment industry is fear based decisions because it's not like a farm where you have a crop, you know how much the crop's going to be, you know how much the price of the crop's going to be. It's creative people mingling with marketing people. So, people with business degrees dealing with neurotic creative people. And so, a a lot of, I, I don't, this is a weird. I don't know. It's a humble brag, some sort of brag, but, but stop being Canadian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's enough already. You've been there for 10, 12 years. Come on. (laughs) I should start bragging. I should like like the Kings by now, not the Canucks. (laughs) No Uh, one likes the Kings. Come on. Agreed. Agreed. So I've asked, I've been asked to teach acting to people in LA many, many times. And I've shied away from it because I don't like the idea of, getting comfortable teaching, even though it's lucrative here. I could be teaching. And technically creative. So like, why wouldn't you? Well, you're not wrong. I guess you're, you're finding the chinks in my hypocritical arm, (laughs) Um, but, but I've avoided it. But now, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what I'm going to do. I just want to enroll in the Robin Collins school of, of, of acting tricks. Yes. Well, when, but I've done some private stuff, like, you know, an actor, comes to me, especially a young actor who's never done it before and asks, you know, like, what's a secret? What do you do? What, you know, what's, what are your tips? And I ask them invariably, what's your first job on set? What's your first job? And invariably they say something like, you know, the craft or being present or listening or things like that. And those are all very important things. But business-wise, my first job, every actor's first job needs to be get everyone home early. (laughs) You want to get rehired? Get everyone home early, your first job. That's all. And you will watch every gaffer, every lighting tech, every assistant director. Yeah, they'll love you. Especially. Every assistant director will see an actor whose first job is to get people home early. And they'll be like, I'm having him back. Every direct, everyone. Okay. So how does somebody do that then? Well, the first thing that you, that I think you do is um, focus on everyone else's jobs. So if there's somebody doing continuity and you see something that's a bit off, you privately say to that person in continuity, like, I noticed this. It's up to you. So that guy looks good now, or that girl looks good now. They go, yeah, no, no, wait, stop. The cigarette's not the right length. You know, 
And then they look like they, they did a good job. You know, if you've crossed the line of the axis line and you say to the DOP, just, are we crossing the line right now? Is that the plan? And he'll go, oh man, yeah. Oh yeah, by the way, we've crossed the line. We can't do this anymore. And they look good. That's one of my first things. But most actors are, again, tend to be neurotic piles of, it's all about me. It's all about me. And what's my line? What's my emotion? What's my motivation? I'm never talking to a director about my motivation. I'm talking to him like, what do you need from me, baby? A lot of people don't have your your ability to know about the filmmaking side of things. I mean, you would know about crossing the line. You would know about continuity and you're cognizant of these kinds of things. I think most people are actually, most actors are just thinking about, holy shit, my line, holy crap, my, my moment. I got to find my mark. Yep. Yep. You know, they, they probably don't have the ability to even think beyond themselves. So is the first thing, I mean, are, are you just confident in your abilities as an actor that you can think beyond that stuff? You show up prepared, you show up knowing your way through this? That, I mean, that's an excellent question. It depends on the project, I would argue. I, I'm, I'm lucky in that a lot of my commercial work, I mean, I've done feature length stuff and character stuff, but a lot of the money that I've made is in commercials. So I'm lucky that they're short form. And so I don't have to learn a ton of lines all the time. But often I will show up unprepared to a certain degree because I don't like the idea of setting my mind to a certain way of doing it before arriving on set. So a lot of the time I will arrive on set without a firm direction because, and commercial sets are the one place where I will take a line reading. If I'm on a movie set or if I'm on a stage, you can take your line reading and <laughs> walk into the ocean. But on a commercial set, I grasp it. It's a really specific place, a commercial set. It, 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 it is, it is. And so the first thing I do is, is to talk to the director immediately. I just say, just say some stuff to me where I understand the aesthetic and I will execute to the best of my ability. And when I screw it up, just let me know. I also think it's really important, especially on a commercial set, if we've done something and there's playback at Video Village, I will go and watch it with the director. I will walk and I won't listen to anyone else. That's the first thing I'll do is like, oh, we're doing playback. I want to see playback. Yeah. A lot of actors won't do that. A lot of actors will kind of just go into their own heads and go, I wonder how I did. I'm, you know, and start getting, as you're saying, neurotic, or for that matter, congratulating themselves on doing such an awesome job, even though it may or may not be working for camera. The key to commercial acting is something that I call near parody performance. That's what you have to do. Basically, you have to act in a way where the audience, the person that's watching you on television, knows that you're in on the fact that you're in a commercial, but you aren't overly. You're not wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Like the bite and smile is what we, we talk about. Like this is a McDonald's burger. I love it. Right. And there's the, the, a lot of actors in commercials really try to like sell it, like really go like, this is so good. Like they really go overboard. And then there's some people like, Mm, it, this is a great burger. And you got to find that middle way of being like, don't worry. I know we're selling you a burger and I'm acting, but it is a really good burger. You should have it. 
it's that relationship that you have to foster, that near parody. It's not a parody, but it's close to a parody. And audiences love it. Airing on the acting side of parody. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that's what audience appreciate when they feel like they're being spoken to about arguably a good product. Although, here's a, here's a secret. I will tell you, there's, I, and don't tell my agent if he ever hears this. <laughs> don't worry, no one will hear this show. <laughs> I, uh, I, there are very few things, that, very few companies I won't work for. One is cigarettes and the other is McDonald's. And I've had the opportunity several times to audition for McDonald's and I have deliberately tanked it. <laughs> and my, if my agent found out, he would be furious. I was almost, I was almost, I was in the running, me and another guy, in the running for the live action Hamburglar. <laughs> That's not a thing. Oh, why don't you bing it? <laughs> Google that little gem. His career went sideways after that. Oh, there'll be a link in the uh, show notes, folks. Yeah. Live action Hamburglar. It was horrible. So I, I have a question for you, if that's sure, all right. Sure, by all means. You, in fact, not to tell tales out of school, have seen me on set work. You've been a producer for many of things that I've actually really, really enjoyed and not commercials, some long form uh, comedy. Yeah, actually, I was going to get into that, actually, because we did a, a web series. We did uh, a couple of shorts. You've seen me act yes. and you've seen me edit the things that I have. <laughs> That's true. You you are so multi-talented. I think you taught me some of my editing as well. Like oh, that's very true. <laughs> so what am I like on set from an outsider's point of view? Well, even regardless of set, it's actually before set. I remember when we were getting into um, into casting for Four Pounds. So this is a, a short film that my brother Josh Levy directed. It was uh, written by and starring Scott Thompson of Kids in the Hall of Fame. And there was this character Sparrow, and it was uh, supposed to be Scott's sort of protege and manservant. Man's, <laughs> manservant, exactly. So Scott said, uh, just so you know, my friend Robin is going to play Sparrow. I remember we had, I think we had looked at a couple other people. We were brainstorming. Josh and I were trying to figure out who, who was going to be Sparrow. And then you got to town. We met you. We sat down for five minutes. You delivered one line. Josh and I got up. We went into the other room and we said, this guy's in. It was one line. I remember, and I just looked, I said, holy crap. Oh, shucks. You just slipped right into character. It was, it was a character we weren't expecting. It was a way of going about it we weren't expecting. And it was, it was clear that there was some depth to it. It was odd. It was, there was, we, we could feel the backstory, even though we didn't know the backstory, if that made any sense. Well, I, I, I was taught, and um, I remain focused when I work on playing motivations and not qualities. I find that a lot of actors, especially on commercial sets, play qualities. They play the quality of happy, the quality of angry, the quality of scared, instead of figuring out, and I mean, this is very cliche stuff, obviously, um, but, but motivation-wise, like, well, who, what, what, am I, what do I want? You know, what, do I, what am I trying to do? I've been in the business since, like I say, I was 12. And I think it comes from me observing at a very young age, the people on a set get angry, you know, uh, directors and writers and I watch them get angry and then production stops. And then that makes everyone more angry. It makes the other actors angry. And I knew early on that 
that was the last thing that was going to help anyone. Right. And so my motivation a lot of the time is to make this mesh, make it work, be the glue. And like I say, my second priority is acting, is acting good. And, and uh, I think that's why I have had a sustained career is because I don't take, I don't put in my mind the cart before the horse. You're pretty hard on yourself. You got to town and you decided you were not going to do anything that wasn't creative. Do you ever second guess that? Regardless of just like literally needing money, but like, do you ever sit there and go, oh my God, I've made, I've made wrong decisions here. I'm, I'm, I'm doubting my talent. I'm doubting my ability. I'm not getting the calls. I'm not, I'm not finding the things that are really uh, creatively inspiring me. Have I made some sort of mistake? <laughs> that's, a t- that's a tough question to answer. Not because I don't know, but because there's a lot of pride uh, wrapped around it. it. It feels shameful to admit this, but I feel like I would be a coward if I didn't admit it. I have had two panic attacks my, here in my time in LA. One was when I first got here. It, it was I was living with a friend in Beverly Hills, um, David Schumann, God bless him. Um, and he was with his wife. It was a small place. And it had become a situation where I wasn't really very welcome anymore because uh, it's really hard to get started in this town. Um, and uh, they were not, they were whatever they were. He was on the master cleanse. <laughs> it just was a stressful situation. And I, one day I, they had a sort of jacuzzi tub and I was just terrified. And I was in the tub, you know, physically and metaphorically naked. And I, I just bust. I, I was like, I, I have nowhere to go. I have nothing to do. And there's nothing so that I've never been so panicked and so fearful. And it was, you know, 25 minutes, half an hour, but it's a feeling I've never felt before. It was the first time it had ever happened. Um, And happily right after that, I started editing for rap, hip hop and stuff like that. So things got on board, but yeah, I didn't second guess my move. But what I was doing is, well, I felt, it felt like it was hopeless. Real fear. Yeah, proper fear. And, and you know, when we, when we were, you know, growing as a species, as primates, there were reasons to be scared. Bears are coming to get you or snakes <laughs> or whatever it is. So you had an object to fear. But this is that amorphous, like, I, don't, I can't even point my fear anywhere. I'm just, like, scared. And I, I, it was horrible. It, it was panic, proper panic. You see how tears and, uh, you know, you're, you're grabbing, you know, you're clutching your arms. And, and so, yeah, that was it. What'd you do to get around that? How did you respond to that? Uh, happily, I was home. Alone. I, they were gone. So I had time to sort of, I, I, I got out of the bath and, and sort of stared into the mirror. And I could see myself shaking and I, you know, drive myself off and, and just spent time breathing as best I could. Um, I should have reached out to someone, honestly, I should have called someone, my mom or, you know, someone I should have really communicated, but my, 
pride and male pride probably was in the way. And um, I just I just sat it out. <clears throat> and when my friend Dave came home, I didn't tell him, which I should have, because he's a kind man. And um, after sort of, you know, cocooning and, you know, hiding and, and rocking like a, a baby for, you know, a day or so, eventually calls started trickling in of, of like, well, can you come edit this short film or can you come edit this rap video or whatever it was? And I sort of climbed out of the, the dark place and, um, it, and it was no fun. It was my first tangle with anxiety, I think, and depression. And it was no fun. Um, and then I stayed pretty, pretty optimistic. There was a time after I got off tour with Scott where not as bad as, as the, the, the tub experience, but I definitely had a, maybe it was my midlife crisis. Well, I'm not really midlife yet, but anxiety, well, something. Nervous breakdown, who knows? Um, where I had been away from the game with Scott traveling all over the nation, all over Canada and the United States doing our show. And I had said, like, before I started directing and, and tour managing and editing, producing this show, that I knew I was going to take a hit in, in Hollywood. I knew I was going to lose money. I knew I was going to lose time, but creatively, I was behind it 100%. And I knew I'd regret. If I said no, I'd regret it. And this is Scott's recent Buddy tour. Yeah, but the Buddy Cole monologues, um, which we're still hopeful that, you know, Amazon will pick it up when everything starts. Um, and like when I got back, even though I'd prepared myself, even though I had thought, yeah, you're going to take a hit. When I got home and the phone wasn't ringing, and I wasn't getting any auditions. It, it, it hurt. It, it was like, oh gosh, what have I done? I've irreparably damaged my time in Hollywood. That, that all of the casting directors have forgotten me. Uh, I'm older now and I'm doomed. Um, and I, there was a really like a week of darkness, more maybe of darkness. And, <laughs> and then. I got a call from a casting director that that uh, uh, missed me and found out that I was back. And I went out for an audition for a national, uh, for a major company. And I went and auditioned, panicked, because I was like, maybe I don't have it anymore. Maybe I've lost my, my, my stuff. And I did my best. Um, and I got the role. And now you're the spokesman for Depends. I, exactly. <laughs> I... <laughs> Geritrol. Uh, yeah, I got the gig. The wardrobe fitting uh, was in Santa Monica, and I live in Burbank. So it's an hour-ish plus drive. And uh, I called them the day of and said, hey, I'm coming to the wardrobe fitting today at one. This, this virus thing is a bit, are we still on? Are we still doing this? <laughs> and they were like, yep, absolutely. Absolutely, we're doing it. Green light, all systems go. I go, all right, let's do it. Drove down there, hour and a bit, got up to the wind, got up to the place, and a woman behind the window went, no, did the did the throat cut symbol and went, <laughs> we're shut down. We're shut down. I was like, oh, yep, 
there's the panic pack. I've missed you. So that was, that was another gut punch. Um, 2020 has been just such a garbage fire for, for everyone, for everyone. And I know I'm relatively young. And uh, if I got this thing, probably I'd be fine. But I have friends, Uh, you know, I have, my friend Robert is a 76 year old gay fella who survived the AIDS Holocaust, you know, the AIDS epidemic. If in any way I were to get him sick and if he died from this, I, the moral hangover would be, I could, I couldn't take it. Yeah. It's vital. Everyone take this seriously. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Despite what it's, you know, doing to each of us individually, career wise and psyche wise, of course. How is your, is, is what you're doing here? Is, is that food for Roby? What this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, like yourself, I've always been involved in creative endeavors. Um, Funny enough. I mean, I know everybody started a podcast when COVID hit, but you know, for me, this has been something that's been in the works for a while because I've, I grew up in an art household and, you know, a Saturday for us was to pile in the car and go drive into Toronto and go to 80 Spadina before it was the offices of Shopify and go see these galleries that was in this really interesting old building and we would see sculpture and we'd see painting and, and just fascinating things. And, and my dad would always wind up discussing things with the gallery owners and with the artists if they happen to be there. So part of that is this for me. I've always been interested in art uh, beyond the stuff that I make. You know, we all make this stuff and we're driven to make this stuff. There's something that spurs us all on to, to, to make this happen. And that's ultimately just what I was fascinated in exploring because I know why I do it. And I'm curious why other people do it and how they do it. And that's really where this came from. And that's why this has been sort of percolating for a while, even though it's actually just coming out now. Well, I know you've, you've, um, you've because you are with child now, <laughs> you have spawn. Yeah, you, you have been... Uh, you know, obviously um, distracted from a lot of the things that you normally do. But I'm curious because as, as one of your titles is producer, you have produced, have, have there been any people clamoring like, Hey man, just so you know, I'm available. Have you had any of those kind of calls? I do. I get, I get emails all the time. I get, I get calls all the time from folks that are, uh, you know, that are, that are looking for an opportunity or looking for a partner on a, on a script. I may not be actually able to do anything with it myself, but I might be able to connect that person. I mean, if there's an opportunity to, to help somebody out who's, you know, showing some real talent and showing some real uh, drive and gumption, then sure. Yeah, of course. You know, at, at the same time, you can't just will something into being. The, the takeaway from this, listeners at home, is that Roby is very interested in receiving all your uh, <laughs> pitch ideas. Don't send and, me your stuff, please. And pipe dreams. <laughs> www.makingalivingshow.com. Just send them in. Flood them. He'll look at them all. He'll strongly consider any opportunity. This interview is over. <laughs> Back to something that isn't going to get edited out of the show. Uh, <laughs> tell me, what does a typical day look like for 
an actor slash director slash editor slash shooter slash everything that you do? Well, happily or unhappily, there is no such thing as a typical day. Um, like I say, I, I, I wanted to avoid the um, cubicle life, working at a bank or lawyer, things like that. To quote a famous artist, every day I'm hustling. But yeah, I mean, I, I usually, I'm freelance everything, right? So the projects that I'm working on are many and varied. And um, my quip about babysitting is, is very real. A lot of the artists that I work with aren't good at anything other than the one thing that they're good at. And so I have to sort of do the rest and tell them, you know, yes, this is the correct edit. And yes, they will like it. And no, we're not going to do that. When, and I don't mind selling Scott out, for example, when he was going to sort of advertise our show, his idea to advertise the show was for Buddy Cole to receive a letter on screen for, in the mail and have and open it and white powder comes out of the piece of mail. And he opens the piece of mail and it is like a ransom note where you, they cut out the letters and it's a la Jesse Smollett's, you know, hope you die F word, you know, F, F, the, the gay F word, not other F word. And he, he pitched this to me with a straight face. He was like, this is what I want to do. And I had to just be like, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> no. How did you get him off that? Well, I pitched him the other idea, which is um, the one that actually got made, which I directed, which is Buddy at a bar talking to a bartender who was played, thankfully, by the wonderful Dave Foley. Never heard of him. Yeah. And um, he's just talking about what his show is going to be about, all the horrible things that his show is going to be about. You know, homophobia, Islamophobia. Uh, you know, all the horrible things. And the bartender goes, well, you got to be careful nowadays because, you know, nowadays. Buddy says, what do you mean? Well, because I'm gay. And the bartender says, no, because you're an old white guy. You can't talk about anything. <laughs> and that's the gag. And I got, I was able to sell him on that because it's A, funny, but and B, I was like, we should put another kid in the hall in there too. Uh, and then he was like, yeah, you're right. But a lot of it is babysitting. A lot of it is like editing the raw emotional output of these wonderfully creative people. But they're the river and you're the hydroelectric dam where you like slow it down in order to make energy, you know, in order to create something. You have to be like, okay, whoa. Let's turn some turbines here. Let's, you know, let's figure it out. Well, that's the thing I always notice about working with Scott and the rest of the kids is, is the thing I always took away is the idea that they always opt for what's excellent. They're hard on the work. It doesn't matter where the good idea is coming from. If it's the good idea, that's the idea. You have to beat the hell out of it until it, in the last idea standing, that's the good one. That's one of those things that I really, I really personally took away. Uh, from, from my projects with Scott. What advice would you give f 
fellow budding producers. Who is doing this interview? You or me here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've produced far less than you, right? But I have had the occasion to produce something. And you would be the person I would ask for advice. And I was thinking, wow, what an opportunity. Because I've never, in fact, uh, hopefully I will be producing things more. What's a nugget of wisdom? I would have to say one of the things that I really learned along the way is to, you know, find a thoroughbred or two or three. Find these people who are just creative juggernauts. They, they have idea after idea after idea. They're dialed in. They're thinking. They're seeing different ways of coming at all of these different things that are going on in the world around us. Find these people, pair them up, put them together and, 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 and see what comes of it. When you have the opportunity to work with somebody who just creatively fascinates you, you can help steer them through and find that one excellent idea, the needle in the haystack. And if you can do that, then you know where you're going to put your money. Then you know where you're going to put your energy and effort, and you're going to make that idea come to life. That's ultimately really what producing is. It's, it's not making calls to get gear. It's not getting, you know, making calls and, uh, and, and doing contracts. Uh, it's not finding money and finding financiers and, and distribution. That's, that's perfectly fine. That's part of it. But you're not going to want to do any of that stuff as a producer unless you have a project you absolutely love working with creatives that can actually get it done for you and bring that idea to life. That's ultimately, you have to fall in love with the project. It's good advice, folks. <laughs> good advice. Keep your ears open. Good advice over here. Just saying. I mean, you know. Getting back to me interviewing you as opposed to you interviewing <laughs> me. I know every day is different, but how do you balance this? You've got work. You got to get paid. You got to be creative. You have a life outside of all of this stuff. How are you navigating that? Poorly. <laughs> um, well, I've always said that 50% of my job is socializing. Um, and a lot of actors and everyone in entertainment sort of forget that. A director or a producer or a casting director, when they're given a job to do, they will think about the person that they had a beer with last night. And if you're that person, they will think, oh, yeah, Robin was there. Yeah, well, yeah, big Robin. But if you haven't spoken to those people for a month, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't know. Who? I, I don't know. I'm going to go through pictures. I, all right. Um, which has become very difficult because now we're not really socializing anymore. And the key to or the, 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 the sub-level, the part B of that, is when you socialize as an enter person in an entertainment industry, it's so important not to make it a job, even though it is. It's your job to go out and socialize. But don't go out and be like, hey, I'm here to network. You know, just pick a person that you find interesting and then just chat with them. Not about work, not about anything. Just talk just because they're interesting. And you'll find that very quickly, you build a, a community of like-minded people. There's two versions of success in Hollywood. And, you know, one is the, the, the idea that you just step on everyone else's head to get, a, to get to the top. And then there's the Adam Sandler version, which is, I just want to work with everyone I like. I want to work with my friends and things like that. I err on the side of Sandler. I enjoy his dramatic work far more than his comedic work. 
because I believe he is an amazing dramatic actor. He's had some good turns. Oh my gosh. Uh, Gems and um, Punch Drunk are masterpieces. So, but I, I, I err on the side of, I just want to work with, I want to, I want to bring everyone together. I don't want to be like, ha ha, I got what I wanted. I'm, uh, you know, screw you. I'm out of here. So the lack of socialization has been very, very difficult, but I've been trying to do the zooms and stuff like that. Um, I, it always feels like though, when I'm socializing over the interwebs, it's like <laughs> earmuffs, young children. It's like having sex with a condom on. It's almost it, like it feels good, but it's like not quite there. You know, like, ah, this doesn't feel as close. Zoom is a social prophylactic. But yeah, day-to-day stuff has been difficult. I've been, well, here's something I've been doing to, to entertain me and keep creative. My friend Gary, uh, he's been doing acting alone with friends who are acting alone. And so I've started reaching out to actor friends of mine and we just started a text thread of like, someone says something in character, in a scene, you respond, no context. You figure out a scene, then you film yourself at your house doing your half and they film themselves doing their half and I'll cut it together and we'll make a scene. It's not gonna go anywhere, <laughs> you know, no one's, no one's gonna care. But you feel engaged. You feel like you're still alive. You're still doing something. Still flexing those muscles. Yeah, because... With a text director, basically. Yeah. You know, it's like slow improv. But yeah, balancing, it's almost impossible. Are you going to put any of these out? I mean, only if I'm incentivized by a certain famous producer I know. (laughs) I would very much like to see these. I may invest tens of dollars in it. (laughs) <laughs> well, you are a, a ten-scenario. Ten- yeah. I mean, I'll have to, of course, apply for funding from the uh, Canadian <laughs> government. But you know, yeah. Oh, here's a here's a here's a delightful tidbit. The American government has obviously abandoned everyone living in America in general. They're they're sending um, twelve hundred dollars to human, which in uh, Alabama, twelve hundred dollars that'll buy a house in California. That's a third of your rent. But out of nowhere, the Canadian government sent me money. <laughs> California. Like, oh, my gosh. You guys are so sweet. We care. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. So, yeah, yeah. Balancing, it, it's tough. It, you know, as far as making days work and days make sense. I've, you know, people, I don't even know what day it is. People have asked me, like, it. <laughs> It's Fleur's Day, the Glarteenth of Grenember. I don't know. It's, so, yeah, if I had any tips, uh, I would say lock down your, your sleep routine. It's so easy to forget what time it is or, you know, drink to freaking 4 a.m. and just be like, well, who cares? I'm not waking up for anything tomorrow. So, yeah, sleep schedule nourishment yeah, a little activity here and there sunshine yeah I've, I've done arts and crafts oh my god what arts and crafts have you done terrifying well a, a dear a dear friend of mine who is who has kid multiple children who she has to homeschool right now which is madness how dare you uh she's a big tim and eric fan 
and she's a big fan of the the Beaver Boys, who love to drink white wine and eat shrimp. Uh, it's a hilarious. It, it link in the description. Um, I purchased dollhouse sized shrimp and dollhouse sized white wine and a dollhouse sized plate and a dollhouse sized cutting board, and I'm gonna glue them all together, put them in a like a ring box and uh, drop it off her because she's she's pulling her hair out. These are not real shrimp. No. Please don't send no. her real shrimp. That's going to just yeah. smell terrible. By, by, by the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> no ice. <laughs> Good luck with that. So, yeah, just try to be creative while you can. As far as money goes, like many of us are doomed. Canada will take care of you. America will not, depending on where you're listening to this podcast for. But many of us are doomed. Unfortunately, either COVID or unemployment will, will get us all. Hopefully, you've been nice to your parents uh, over, your t- over your lifetime. Yeah, and, and hopefully, you don't have a drug problem. Like, where, where are you going to find meth right now? That's got to be horrible. I've been worried about criminals because there's got to be some crimes. That, like, if you're a home invader, you're screwed. Everyone's home. That's a, you're, out of, you're out of luck. Muggers, you can mug with a gun, but you can't mug with a knife. That you know, you can't get that close. I'll cough on you. Get that. Get away. They're doomed. Poor criminals. Poor criminals. Scammers, though. Oh, internet scammers. The world's their oyster. Oh, they're killing it. Killing it. Well, speaking of the internet, where can people find you? I, I avoid the internet like the plague. So, I would like to tell everyone out there who enjoys. Anything I've said. Uh, I am a master of uh, accents, dialects, etc. And if anyone wants to get a hold of me, do anything, they should go to makingalivingshow.com <laughs> and contact my voice agent, Roby Marion <laughs> Francis Levy, which is his full name. Uh, and, and he will put you in touch with me. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and, uh, making me into your voiceover agent and sharing how you make a living. Well, thank you. And, uh, I want to remind you that, uh, soon your child will be older and more of a problem. Thanks. Subscribe to Making a Living Show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow along at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please share the show with someone you know. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.